happened in Chicago. So what what do you think is is the capacity of of places like 4chan poll to to you know radicalize young men and and lead them down a bad path? Uh, isn't this just an incel phenomenon when you really boil it down? These are all young guys who um, are unattached, who don't have much prospect of, you know, finding a significant other uh, or even getting laid, you know. And so this is the uh, probably the inevitable result of that. But still, uh, statistically, is it that significant? Is there that much of it for a country like America? No. Shouldn't there actually be, shouldn't there actually be a lot more? No, no. Statistically, it's it's not significant. I mean, there are there are five hundred times other other ways of uh, of being um, uh, murdered uh, rather than than some alt right dude radicalized on 4chan. It's just that that one gets far more attention. I, I remember last week there were like fifty six migrants who boiled to death in a truck, and it got very little attention compared to the the 20 or so people who were shot up in Uvalde. So I guess it both depends on who's who's dead and and who who killed them. Uh, if it's if it's a mass shooter, if it's a, if it's a white guy, then it gets 20 times more news coverage than if it's some um, coyote smugglers. Uh yeah, yeah, the news has always been very selective in that way, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, this is um something that happens all the time. There's there's news which gets completely ignored and there's news it doesn't and there's non-news that kind of um you know fills the airways and during uh much of the the uh, trump presidency there was uh one nothing burger after another wasn't there yeah yeah all the all the the fake uh the fake hate crimes uh tell me you've started a new website uh neocrat what's what's going on there <laughs> Well, I've been kind of lumbered with uh, the alt-right for uh, rather too long. And, you know, the alt-right was, at the time, when the, when the alt-right got started, um, it, it wasn't really right-wing. But unfortunately, the name was alt-right, which, you know, was um, a bit of a handicap, really, because I think the alt-right wanted to, um, the original alt-right, uh, the 2010 alt-right, wanted to look at things in a much more... Um, kind of uh, radical and um, transcendent way. Uh, but uh, eventually it got kind of subsumed into this kind of tribal left-right uh, nonsense that uh, dominates so much of the uh, political and metapolitical and philosophical and moral universe. And I've always been kind of pushing um, against that. And uh, even when I was part of the so-called alt-right, a lot of my work was uh, trying to um, escape from that um, kind of crude framing, and so you know the uh, the site, the neocrat, is the um, the culmination of that. I want to um, have content that looks at uh, things in a kind of deep and radical way, but without the um, uh, res uh, heavily restrictive framing of this kind of left, right, uh, tribal um, kind of. Um, uh, hive-minded, um, moronic way of thinking. Mm. And what do you think about the conservative war on the Disney Corporation? 
Yeah, this is a reference to uh, a little bit of news about Ben Shapiro. And uh, I think it's, uh, his outfit are tr trying to um, sort of branch branch out uh, from commentary into entertainment and uh, pro provide more wholesome family entertainment because, uh, you know, I think the Disney Corporation has been drifting leftwards for a considerable period. And uh, by drifting leftwards, they've probably left a bit of a, uh, a potential gap in the market. And uh, um, maybe some sort of organization um, can then step in and provide the kind of uh, family-friendly, Christian conservative content that a lot of Americans actually want, rather than this uh, more um, woke, uh, globalist version of um, Disney that uh, now seems to dominate. So it could be a good business move, but it would have to be done with, uh, you know, skill and, um, you know, a lot of um, a lot of right decisions would have to be made. So that's not necessarily going to happen. And uh, what do you think of Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis? He's being talked up as, as a favorite, particularly if Trump doesn't run to win the Republican nomination in 2024. Um, yeah, I've seen DeSantis and, you know, he just strikes me as a very boring uh, kind of managerial type. Um, slightly creepy, actually. Um, a bit fake. Um, a kind of probably quite a, um, a clever, slick politician. Uh, but I don't, there's, there's just no resonance there. I don't really like the guy. He might he might be a good guy. He might you know do good things, but um, you know compared to Trump, he seems rather boring. Um, you know maybe he'll be able to do things that maybe he'll be able to do Trumpism more efficiently than Trump. But uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think uh, he's a self-serving type. So the news media wouldn't allow Richard Spencer to go on Bumble without writing an article uh, about him. But uh, it's interesting how eager Richard Spencer is to, on the one hand, tell the mainstream media is no longer a white nationalist, but in his own own spaces, he'll say, "I'm just, I just care about Aryans." So maybe he's no longer a white nationalist; he's just an Aryan nationalist. Not really sure what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Richard Bashan, it's kind of easy to do, but um, I, I, I try to avoid it because, you know, um, I think Richard is an interesting character. You know, he's a bright guy. He's, you know, um, he's created a lot of interesting takes on various subjects. He usually says something that's um, at least witty um, and occasionally incisive. Um but I think he's really, yeah, he's got his own curse to bear, and uh, he did get, uh, yeah, he did he did get sucked into this um, the the Nazi tard phase of the alt right quite heavily, and he's never going to really be allowed to escape that, and of course it's had all sorts of negative um, consequences for him financially and socially and so on. And so I think uh, most of the things that Richard has done in the last few years do seem to re uh, resemble a kind of damage control. And 
or a kind of muddying of the waters. He's trying to he's trying to um, make amends in, in a sense, but he's also trying to uh, you know obf obfuscate the um, his past. And uh, I think this is what's probably drawn him very strongly to something as absurd on the on the face of it as uh, Apollonianism, because this is this is what he identifies as mainly now is an Apollonian, as as you probably know. And Apollonianism is a kind of, um, I mean, I think probably for most people, uh, on first hearing, it's quite a goofy idea because it basically sounds like he's trying to revive uh, worship of the Greco-Roman god Apollo. And, you know, of course, if you speak to Richard about this, which probably he, he, he'll never do because you're in his bad books, uh, he'll probably tell you that uh, it's it's an extension of his uh, kind of um, understanding of uh, Nietzsche's, uh, Nietzsche's philosophy. Yeah, it's interesting that Spencer has teamed up with, with Mark Brahman in that uh, whatever you think of Richard Spencer, he's very clear. Like even if he's being muddled, he, he's very clear in his, I don't know, I, I never have a hard time understanding what Richard Spencer is saying. On the other hand, uh, Brahman just does not cohere for me. I, I mean, I, I can kind of get it that like he basically blames the Jews for, for almost all the ills of the, the modern world. But uh, uh, are you able to make heads and tails of uh, Mark Brahman? And do you have any theories on why Richard wants to be joined at the hip with him? Yeah, I think... Um... Yeah, that's the problem with with Brahmin. Brahmin, if you uh, listen to little bits and pieces of him, uh, he he does come across as a kind of um, not so obviously in the closet kind of Jew hater. Um, and you know, if people want to hate the Jews, I guess that's fine. You know, everybody's entitled to have their um, you know, the things they like and the things they don't like, and uh, to think what they they think about different. Um, groups and people and things and so on but uh you know spencer i mean i think one of the one of the reasons spencer is attracted to apollonianism is is because of its absurdity and uh you know it's it's you know um he's he's always he's always going to be seen as a, a neo-nazi white nationalist and so he needs something that's even more kind of goofy and eye-catching than being a, a neo-nazi white nationalists and something like uh you know apollo worship uh would possibly do that people would would look at that and they say okay richard spencer uh he used to be a neo-nazi but now he's just a bit mad you know he's a bit of an eccentric he's gone he's gone off the deep end and then they would probably or possibly you know think let's leave this guy alone you know he's obviously gone cuckoo and so that would be one of the um, one of the utilities of uh, going along with something like uh, Apollonianism, and of course, it, maybe it's partly inspired by uh, Richard's former friend uh, Georgiani, who has his own kind of weird, wacky uh, neo-religion, Prometheanism. So. I think uh, there's a lot of funny things going on there, but you've got to look at it from a kind of point of uh, point of view of the utilities it has for somebody like Richard, um, and he is trying to live down his um, his past. But of course, uh, if Mark Brahmin, 
um, is anti-Jewish in any way, that's probably likely to um, increase over time, you know, because that's usually what happens when people are uh, against Jews on the down low. And uh, the, the longer they go on, the, the more apparent and obsessive that becomes. And on the other hand, Richard does a near weekly show with Edward Dutton, who's like the opposite of Mark Brahman. Uh, Ed Dutton's uh, very clear, doesn't display any animus towards Jews. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's that's probably a, a better direction uh, to go in. But then again, you know, Mark Brahmin and um, Apollonianism, it's got that kind of, uh, wow, what the fuck kind of factor. So uh, I'm not sure that uh, Edward Dutton has that. Yeah. And uh, what's going on with uh, Jared Taylor these days? Have you been paying any attention? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did an article about Jared Taylor, and um, he did a he did a, a video, and basically, if you if you look at the uh, the video uh, and you boil it down, what he's saying is that um, you know the the sharp rise in LGBTQ transgenderism, blah blah blah, whatever you want to call it, amongst the younger generation is uh, mainly due to the fact that they're uh, scared of being called racist. Mm. And so I thought that was a bit funny because, you know, um, Jared Taylor has been called racist uh, more, probably more than anybody uh, over the years. So, uh, you know, why isn't he gay yet? Now, let's, let's just, I don't think we've ever spoken about same-sex marriage. Uh, conservatives have not had an easy time articulating a, a rational basis to oppose same-sex marriage. Uh, liberals can can evoke universal principles of, of equality, and they they just seem to have a much harder time on the rhetorical playing field. While while people right of center, they they hail much more towards an uneasy feeling about the the toppling of traditional forms of identity and traditional forms of of organizing a family but uh it, it does seem that the the, the liberal approach has is, is just overwhelmingly won the day and in, in rhetorical battles liberals have a much easier time making the case for why marriage equality is a good thing while people on the right have a much harder time trying to make an argument why marriage equality is not a good thing do you have any thoughts on this argument Um, well, I think marriage, uh, sort of um, <clears throat> gay marriage, is a kind of um, it has elements of the right and the left, really. Uh, you know, first of all, there's the kind of equivalence between uh, gay people marrying and um, non-gay people marrying, and of course, that's uh, that sort of equivalence is uh, it sort of harmonizes with the basic uh, ideology of uh, Western liberal society which is to treat everybody the same but also it's a kind of conservative move uh, marriage because you know um, gay marriage is a kind of conservatism as well because most homosexuals uh, back in the day one of the things that um, um, 
one of the things that they enjoyed about being gay was the, the kind of freedom to basically, yeah, you know, do what they want and uh, not to be tied down in their rather conventional um, marital relationships. And so there is a conservative element to it as well. Um, but uh, and most of the world and uh, the entire, almost the entirety of human history has been against it. And I guess, you know, in the long run, I don't think it's going to really subsist um, for very long. I don't think, um, you know, if you come if you come back to Earth a thousand years later, will there still be gay marriage? I kind of doubt that. Uh, let me take it up, up a notch. Uh, people on the right feel like they're walking around with the with a left wing boot on the on their neck that all the, the major institutions and all, all the ways that uh, we're we're supposed to argue and discuss public issues in, in public are, are dominated by the liberal left do you, do you think that's a a fair perception and do you, do you notice is that is that a reality that you notice as well i think that's a very easy conclusion to come to especially in the you know uh, the anglosphere um countries um in britain and america um, especially australia too no doubt it does seem like um, a lot of this um, gay liberation, homosexual equality, uh, gay marriage, transgenderism is being pushed on us, uh, not just by the educational and the academic um, institutions, but also by a lot of the um, corporate institutions. Most of the major political parties are more or less going along with it so this is this is something that's almost uh, guaranteed to predispose people to uh, increasingly conspiratorial thinking and they're going to start thinking there's some evil conspiracy to destroy the family and to destroy uh, you know the white race and to bring down the west um, but on the other hand there are also um, there are also um, kind of reasons why this would be happening why this is being pushed and there is a kind of ideological consistency to this i mean the um uh, we, we we live in um well not me but uh, most uh, most people on the who are listening to this show no doubt uh, live in uh, liberal societies that have been um developing their ideology for uh, decades now and that ideology is basically equality and everybody's uh, more or less the same and everybody should have uh, the same kind of breaks and so on and uh, if you think about a gay person growing up in a, in a society which is quite conservative and quite conventional they are going to feel that they are being discriminated against and so there is a kind of grim logic to what the West is doing, whether you agree with it or, like me, don't agree with it, there is a kind of grim logic to that. Mm. Uh, what do you think of uh, Tucker Carlson? Have you paid him any mind? Um, 
Every time I tune into the Luke Ford show, I'm confronted with this man. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, um, I don't know what to make of Tucker yet. You know, I think um, he says a lot of things that make sense. But then again, uh, there's something a bit off about him. I can't help thinking at times. Something that doesn't, that doesn't quite ring ring true. And one of the things that um, sort of stands out about Tucker is he's actually quite against the uh, the war in in the Ukraine. He wants America to basically just like wash its hands and and uh, you know just let Putin get up to what he wants to get up to, uh, which is a kind of interesting viewpoint. I mean, whether you agree with it or not, it's a kind of interesting viewpoint for a kind of mainstream American media corporation to take. Uh, you would think that, um, you know, there is a kind of logic to America being involved and uh, trying to contain Putin. And in a, in a way, America is kind of benefiting from Putin's aggression as well. And is there anything else about the war in Ukraine that has uh, kept your, your attention over the past few weeks as uh, Russia seems to be doing uh, to, to be more effective in the, in the campaign than they were initially? When you say Russia, you always mean you mean Moscovy, don't you? Because I, 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 as far as I'm concerned, you know, like every everybody tries to see things in a very um, bipolar way. This seems to be a kind of uh, inherent characteristic of um, of uh, most people. They see things in a very very bipolar way. They don't have that kind of Zen mind that people like me have developed that can sort of transcend that. Uh, Kind of crude framing, and on the Russia question, you're 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 either a kind of uh, you're supposed to be a kind of Z Zelensky fanatic or uh, a kind of complete Putin shill, and you're one of one or the other. And of course, uh, if you're a, if you're if you're on the Putin side, you're all pro Russia, pro Russia this and Russia's great, blah blah blah. And then if you're on the other side, you're um, this kind of puppet state. You're supporting this kind of puppet, this puppet Ukrainian state, which is, um, you know, a kind of uh, the vanguard of degeneracy and corruption, supposedly. And I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I, I think what what uh, the 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 way to see this conflict is as a a kind of Russian civil war. I mean, I think Ukraine is 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 russian i think it is essentially part of russia um but the thing is russia is not a completely homogenous uh, one size fits all kind of country russia has a lot of variety within it uh, there is a kind of multipolarity in, inherent in russia and of course that's that's natural because russia is this huge country it has uh, it's, it's been a vast, huge country for a long time, and there are a lot, a lot of different um, poles within Russia. There's a, a lot of tension, for example, between Moscow and Leningrad, and uh, there's all sorts of things that uh, are influenced by that. And then, of course, you have another Russia, which is Belorussia, and you could actually quite comfortably divide Russia up into lots of little Russias. And Ukraine is one of those little Russias, and it wants to uh, go down a much more multipolar route of being Russian. And that's what this is really about. And of course, the uh, 
the over-centralized Putinist state is a reaction to past histories, a, a reaction to, uh, you know, the, uh, the early history of medieval Russia, where the country was uh, viciously attacked by, you know, very violent and oppressive forces from the East. And so that essentially created the czarist state, which was this very unipolar form of Russia. And then later on, you know, Russia got into all sorts of uh, tangles with various European nations like uh, Napoleonic France. And of course, later, you know, the, the Germans in the First World War and the Second World War. And so the idea of a heavily centralized, militarized Russia kind of made sense within that kind of historical framing. But for long periods of its time, Russia has not really been seriously threatened. And right now, I don't think Russia is being seriously threatened. I don't think um, Russia would ever be invaded by NATO. NATO is strictly a, um, a, de a defensive alliance. It's made up of uh, lots of cute, cuddle cuddly nations like Belgium and uh, Norway and so on. These are not the kind of countries that, that go around um, uh, starting blitzkriegs. And how has Japan positioned itself? I assume Japan has just uh, stayed with its ally, the United States, vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine conflict, or has it stood apart from the U.S.? Hey, I think, hey, yeah, yeah. I think that I think that Japan does uh, lip service. They do what uh, they think they should do um, to stay in with who they think they should stay in with, and so they will say, "Yeah, yeah, America, we agree with you about this." Yeah, naughty old Putin, but they won't um, really step up and do that much to help out the Ukraine. You know, they might make a few token gestures. That's more or less what they're doing. Um, likewise with the Chinese, you know, they, they like to keep in with the Chinese. Uh, they don't want to piss the Chinese off too much. And uh, they, they don't want to piss Putin off too much. And so they'll, if they, if they think the Americans really want them to do something, they'll try to maybe edge a little closer but once the pressure's off, they'll just, uh, you know, let it slide. Hmm. And how how's inflation and and economic issues uh, going going over in in Japan right now? Is the country in turmoil, or is there a stiff upper lip and let's just get on with it attitude? Um. Well, Japan is. I think fiscally and uh, economically, Japan tends to be a bit more conservative. And so like um, when we had the, the COVID crisis, they didn't uh, spend a lot of money they didn't have, like uh, other countries did, which maybe they, maybe they had to do, I don't know. But uh, the Japanese were very reluctant for the government to come in and start, you know, bailing everybody out and doing things like that. So um they're more they, they they usually run a tighter monetary policy and so inflation is not too bad from what i can see and uh, how would you describe uh, pill eater 
Yeah, Pilita. Yeah, you know, he's he's a character. He's an interesting guy. He's obviously quite smart. Um, sometimes I think he needs to have a bit more of a focus. But, uh, you know, he comes up with very, you know, good takes on certain things from time to time. So, yeah, I like Pilita. Find his content at least uh, amusing and uh, often quite interesting. And you were shown to be right in another prediction that... Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson would would stay in power. Uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, Bojo? Uh, <laughs> what well, you know? Um, yeah, it's it's really easy to to criticise a British Prime Minister. You know, the the um, whoever the, the Prime Minister of Britain is, uh, they're going to have a lot of. Um, a lot of weak points because of uh, the, uh, the system they have to exist within. Uh, but I, I don't think Boris has really shat the bed yet. I mean, I don't think he's really fucked up in a major way. Uh, he more or less got Brexit done. Uh, he's trying to take care of this kind of Northern Ireland protocol, which is, you know, a kind of... Um, a, a, a rather awkward leftover from uh, the Brexit negotiations. He's even trying to do something about illegal immigration uh, with this Rwanda scheme, which is, you know, being fought against tooth and nail by the uh, the left. And so I think he's gen genuinely trying to do things that the uh, the voters more or less wanting to do there's also been a lot of legal immigration apparently so he hasn't really done much against that but of course uh, for somebody like boris his main concern is um the economy and uh, the national health service those are probably his two um most um important priorities if the economy starts to suffer and if the National Health Service has um, serious problems, that's going to be uh, politically very, very toxic. And so those are his main concerns. So he knows that the, the British voters will blame him most for uh, a weak economy and for anything that goes wrong with the National Health Service. So that's what he's really focused on. And that really limits what he can do about something like uh, legal immigration, because even though most British people uh, in their hearts want less immigration, um, they probably would blame anybody who restricted immigration if that led to uh, the economy going downhill. And are there any Japanese politicians we should be particularly aware of? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> don't bother um they'll be gone they'll all be gone soon and replaced by equally bland clones and uh, uh abe is, is the name of a former prime minister who remains in the back of my head does he does he still wield significant power behind the scenes oh i'm not i don't know about that um i, I presume he does you know because um uh, i mean most japanese uh politicians are like bad farts that don't go away you know they kind of linger in the background and uh, <laughs> so i think abe is 
definitely in that uh, in that category. And uh, Chris Roberts, who was Jared Taylor's assistant, twenty nine, uh, suddenly died. I, I would assume a drug overdose, but I have no idea. Any any thoughts on the passing of Chris Roberts? Uh, yeah, he he wrote for my 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 former site, Affirmative Right, um, under one of his many pen names, and um, I, I thought he was he was quite a good writer. Um, and I didn't, of course, I I didn't know he was Chris Roberts, and uh, we didn't know Chris Roberts was this guy called Rojas. And so this is a guy again. This is like one of the um, the, off, the one of the patterns you often see with uh, the alt right and the distant right. He was a kind of uh, quasi white. This was a guy who had a a Chilean father, and so he was technically uh, you know half half Hispanic at least. And so this is somebody growing up in America who has a bit of a foreign background. That's the kind of person that's probably going to have um, exaggerated identity issues. And a lot of the people in the uh, the alt-right kind of fit into that category. So when I heard about that aspect of Chris Roberts, I thought, okay, that kind of makes sense, yeah. Um, you know, there's there's kind of three elements that say that repeatedly crop up in the in the in the alt-right and uh, this kind of quasi or sub-whiteness is one of them of course there's a kind of gay element as well and a lot of the people attracted to the alt-right are quite short i've noticed as well so that's that's uh, those, those are three things that i see again and again and Chris Roberts, um, or whatever his real name is, I think it's Ro Rojas. Uh, he was he was in at least one of those categories. I'm not sure if he was in the other two categories, but um, I believe in twenty he had some sort of in, in, involvement with the um, the alt right when it was at its height, and then when it kind of blew up a bit in 2017, uh, you know, thanks to um, you know people like Spencer and uh, Unite the Right and all this stuff, and Heather hired um, Dine of whatever course she died of, and when it kind of blew up, it, um, he stepped. He seemed to step back a bit, and I believe in 2019 he headed out to Chile, and he was going to become a Chilean at that point, and then. After a few more months, he headed back to America and started to become uh, Jared Taylor's right-hand man. So, if you if you think about the kind of trajectory there, it seems a little bumpy, a little uneven, a little confused. It suggests that there might have been some kind of um, psychological turmoil uh, involved, and so that would lead you to suspect, in addition to drug addiction, uh, something like possibly suicide as well. But we don't really know at this point what was the cause of him dying. What do you think of the obsession in the alt-right with who glows? Like, who's a Fed? Who's a federal informant? Um, yeah, I think it's... Um, 
it's, it's understandable, really, because I think about, you know, half the people in the alt-right are probably <laughs> on some sort of government payroll, whether in, in Washington or Moscow. <laughs> And and I, I think it speaks to the widespread insecurity uh, on, on the all right, because I noticed the same thing in the pornography industry. So when I was writing on the pornography industry, it kind of existed in that netherworld between the legal and the illegal. And so there was great fear of government intervention to shut them down. And so there's widespread discussion of who or who is not likely to be a, a police informant or a law enforcement informant. So... I think it, it speaks to the insecure, uh, suspicious, e even even paranoid uh, personality that, that tends to, to dominate uh, dissident societies, whether it's the pornography industry or far-right politics. And, and I assume you'd, you'd find much of the same sort of paranoia on, on uh, the far left. Well, um... Let's see, a lot of people on the alternative right are um, technically paranoid. I mean, they, they, I mean, they, um, one of the, the kind of key things they believe in a lot of people on the alternative right is that, uh, you know, the, um, there's somebody trying to kill the, the white race and destroy Western civilization. This isn't just like, oh, it's just happening by, you know, by chance. They believe that it's been, uh, driven and guided by malevolent actors. So they have a paranoid mind frame uh, to begin with. And so when you're when you start out being a paranoid person and you're in an organization made up of paranoid people, then there's going to be a lot of um, like who's who's really one of us and who isn't, who's a fed and who isn't, who's a a, a secret Jew and who isn't. So this is this is just part and parcel of uh, the alt right. I mean, there's all sort of there's all sorts of paranoid people in that movement. And how did you obtain the Zen mind mindset? It, it it sounds even better than the gorilla mindset hawked by Mike Sotovich. Uh, I th I think it's because um, well I don't know there's there's a there's a couple of well several uh, possible actors. It's not just because. Yeah, you know, I live in Japan. You know, I don't. I don't think that's. I think I always had a Zen mind. I was always, um, yeah. It's probably because of my family background as well. You know, just growing up and with brothers and hearing how you know how stupid people can be. Like they kind of in my in my family, people would argue about really stupid things, and I would, you know, I, I was actually the youngest, and so I kind of became much more detached looking at it as if from above, you know, and seeing how stupid other people were, how kind of um, uh, petty they, they were in their emotions and, and how they kind of um, exaggerated things unbelievably, you know. And so I, I just sort of developed that way of just like stepping back and just looking at everything as if I wasn't really there. And so I think that's the origin of my, you know, my Zen mind, to be honest. You know, it's not just because I... You know, I've um, lived in the Orient for many years and, of course, visited many Zen temples and gone to um, shrines in the mountains and meditated and been whacked with a bamboo stick. So you never became a Buddhist monk? 
Well, not really. No, no. Um, don't haven't shaved the uh, the skull yet. And uh, how's Millennial Woes doing these days? He always seems a little bit mopey and depressed. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, Millennial Woes. Um, ah, such promise wasted. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, he did a podcast um, just the other day on uh, some channel called Scrumpy Monkey on um, YouTube. Um, so I might go and have a listen to that later, see if um, see if he says anything different. But honestly, a lot of these uh, alt right personalities, um, when you when you go and tune into them again, uh, it's basically like deja vu. It's it's like oh yeah, I've heard this sort, I've heard all this before, I've heard this line before, I've heard this narrative before. Um, so yeah. It's like a time warp in, 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 in increasingly. So, um, yeah, I think Millennial Woes, his problem is he's just not a happy person and he never will be. And he, you know, he never was. And, and some people, some people are just, um, I, I think some people are just born lucky. They're, they're naturally quite cheerful. They enjoy life. Um, you know, whatever happens to them, bad things, good things, whatever happens to them, they're still, you know, bubbling over and they are, they're enjoying life and they're, they have a positive attitude to what's going on. And some people are the opposite. Their, their happiness level is set at a lower rate. And so they tend to be depressed more easily. They, they tend to take things more negatively. And I think millennial Lois is probably one of those type of people. I would say my my old friend Andy Nowicki is probably uh, a bit like that. Um, I'd say that Luke Ford is probably a, a more cheerful type of person. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but that's just my impression from uh, you know how you conduct yourself. And you know, I certainly feel that I'm like that. I feel uh, I'm I'm usually quite a cheerful person. Uh, you know, things don't really get me down too much, uh, no matter you know how bad they are. You know, I just uh, you know I can I can find some sort of enjoyment or interest in most things, um, and I don't mope and get morose and uh, you know stare into my navel and all that rubbish. I notice a lot of people I know kind of had their minds blown by their experience with the alt right. They they had the sensation that they got to age twenty five, thirty, forty, and and then suddenly you know realized that much of what they'd been told were, were a bunch of lies, and that there are say significant group differences between peoples, and that Jews exercise a lot of influence in some areas, and 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 then what I, I'm disappointed to see happen is that they stay there. They get stuck there like an insect stuck in in amber, and they they don't then apply that same skepticism to to further distant right thinking, but it just seems to extend so that now 
I'm keeping an eye on this mass shooting event in Highland Park near Chicago, and the the immediate response by a lot of people who who are political dissidents is that this is you know this is a, a setup. This is the the government you know arranging something so that they can crack down on guns. And if the if the government comes in with some restrictions to try to deal with COVID or any other putative emergency, that that this just shows the the nefarious nature of the elite. And so do you have any thoughts on how people kind of seem to get stuck in, in, in particular distant right, dissident thinking, and then they just keep going dissident? So all sorts of events that uh, seem fairly settled by historians, they now, they, they now understand it as the result of a Jewish conspiracy or a Freemason conspiracy, or they, they can't seem to escape the amber of the distant mindset. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the this is the thing. Um, you have organisations like the ADL and the uh, uh, Southern Poverty Law Institution, whatever it's called, and they're and of course there's many other organisations as well, and they're all trying to kind of um, fight uh, to to fight extremism, to to um, de-radicalise people, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to you know shut down racist racism and so on and anti-semitism and you know all these all these organizations are clearly failing um i think people are becoming much more um kind of paranoid conspiracy theory oriented and uh, they're becoming you know uh, maybe the people are becoming less racist but they're becoming more anti-Semitic. I, th- I would I'd say that seems to be a pattern as well. And so all this de-radicalization seems to be failing. And, uh, you know, there, there are reasons for that. And, 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 and the, the, um, of course, the main reason for that is the kind of patterns of behavior that you just described. And why do people, um, why do people, evolve in that way or i should i shouldn't use the term evolve should i, I should why do people de-evolve in that way and of, of course it's because uh, the world is uh, the world doesn't make sense to them and uh, the world is too complicated there's there's things which are quite hard to explain i mean um one of the things you hear people often talking about is how many um non-whites are in adverts or how many uh, mixed race couples are in advertising and tv commercials and um it's very very hard for people to to come up with a um a plausible reason for that that doesn't involve some kind of malevolent plot and you have rapid population changes people then uh, say oh that's the great replacement and then they uh, they come up with the idea that it's all been done to them rather than um you know being the um natural result of um, liberal individualism and allowing women to choose uh, what to do with their lives. And so there are a lot of things that, that, that fuel this kind of, uh, consp- uh, this kind of paranoid um, way of thinking. Um, and th- this, is, this is what the alt-right ultimately became after its very bright beginnings. This is what it, it was, it was co-opted by these um, very regressive forces, and it became an expression of this uh, kind of weird mindset. And 
QAnon is another thing that, uh, you know, um, that gave vent to it. And it seems to be coming in, it seem, it does seem to be, to be becoming um, culturally ascendant in, in certain ways. You could even say that, um, you know, people like Tucker Carlson feed into it and, and draw energy from it. And so it, 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 uh, it actually has, um, or is starting to uh, impact society on a much more, um, you know, normy level. And similar, similar to this, I noticed many people from distant right politics ha have found that it's it's much more socially acceptable to pose behind titles like trad Catholic or or just based based Christian. That that is definitely more socially acceptable than to say you're alt right, but it, it seems such a, a transparent pose. I mean, because there's there's very little that that seems to be authentically Catholic about a Nick Fuentes, for example. Do you have any thoughts on that, Colin? The, the Sorry, pose? I missed that. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, I missed yeah. I, I was wondering if it, it seems that a lot of people in the distant right have uh, chosen to adopt terms like trad Catholic or trad Cath or or base Christian because it's a much more socially acceptable way to to present oneself publicly. But there doesn't seem to be a great deal of of authentic Christianity behind any of these people posing as traditional Christians. Yeah, yeah, it's very convenient uh, to <clears throat> to wrap it all up in a kind of religious wrapper. And uh, yeah, obviously, people like uh, Nick Fuentes have uh, sort of pioneered this method with uh, a degree of uh, success. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, I, I mean, somebody like uh, Nick Fuentes, he just doesn't strike me as a religious type. Uh, but obviously, and by pretending to be a Christian, it has a lot of utility for his kind of dissident viewpoints. Uh, he can he can uh, he can almost pretend to be a, a normal person. He can pretend to be somebody who has a, a resonance with uh, the vast majority of uh, of Americans who also pretend to be Christians. And I'm thinking you also get to avoid sex or too much human contact or you know, bonding with people. It's, it's a, it's, it's a useful pose. I, I would expect if you're, you know, kind of repelled at the idea of having sex with women. Yeah, this is probably what, what, um, you know, gave him the idea in the first place. I mean, he, uh, uh, you know, he's a, he's a kind of charismatic young guy. And so everybody's thinking, you know, he, he must have a girlfriend and there was that big, uh, was that thing some years ago where he was supposed to have a relationship with Kathy Zoo, and uh, of course nothing was happening, absolutely nothing. He was much more interested in Catboy Cami or whatever, you know. And so uh, this kind of "I'm a Christian, I'm a good boy, I'm a good Catholic boy" kind of shtuk. Uh, uh, this is this is perfect for uh, you know deflecting from those awkward questions. And so yeah, yeah, Christian nationalism, Christian. You know, Catholic, uh, conservative, all that stuff. It's ideal for somebody like uh, Nick Fuentes, and it's also ideal for people who um, 
you know, who want to be anti-Semitic. I mean, E. Michael Jones, uh, E. Michael Jones uh, uh, sort of did a lot of uh, pioneering work there. Um, you know, he was he 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 wanted to be very very anti-Semitic, but without being a Nazi or you know being a racial um, Nazi. And so he just concocted this whole weird uh, theology of um, of uh, the Jews rejecting Jesus and the you know and, and standing for this uh, rejection of Jesus, and therefore they're bad. But if they accepted Jesus, they'd be good. And but they're never going to accept Jesus, so they must be bad. Blah blah blah. You know. It's just a, con a convoluted way of um, of being a Nazi, really. Yeah, and have you experienced like a a creative a creative burst from from starting a new site and having having a more free direction? I know that when I've got stuck in certain genres, that it's very stultifying over time, and then breaking out of that has just been it's just been exciting. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to have a site uh, that I could use to quickly publish things on uh, for my other various uh, blog sites because you know I've I've uh, I've got a history site and I had a a news site Trad News and I thought you know it's silly having separate sites it's best to have one site and also I wanted a site that I could repost interesting content. Uh, on from around the the internet, you know, like interesting Luke Ford videos, for example, and uh, you know pieces and uh, by other people. And of course, a lot of the content now is actually, um, you know, is video, it is podcast, it's audio, and so the site is um, kind of optimized for reposting videos and audio from other sites, and for you know posting articles as well, of course. Uh, for me and other people, and so it's it's less uh, it's, it's it's less work as well. So there's more content, there's less uh, work for me. So it's kind of a win-win situation. How do you maintain such a consistent uh, work ethic? Because for for every Colin Liddell out there with a consistent work ethic in this sphere, there are a hundred people who burn out much quicker. Well, it's a lot easier for me to to write than most people. I I know what uh, you know. I can size things up. Uh, I know what the points are that should be made, and you know what in what order to put them, and what to leave out. And uh, it just you know it's quite a quick process for me to to write something. Um, a lot of almost all my articles I I just write in one sitting, um, and then you know post them straight away with one or two typos, and take out the typos and maybe quickly make a an audio visual version and uh, you know multi-platform it it's um you know i just i just do it not for the money not for the fame because i get i get uh, very little of either and i just do it because i want to you know like you i want to express a few ideas i want to have my say and if people want to you know uh, read it and and follow it and maybe con contribute in some way with their own uh, content, that's fine. So, you know, just uh, trying to create a nice, um, healthy space for ideas and to break away from uh, this kind of uh, tribal, you know, monkeys throwing shit kind of show that uh, seems to dominate so much of uh, contemporary discourse. And there are a lot, there are a lot more options for 
increasingly free discussion on online now with with the rise of odyssey and, and with bitshoot and, and with rumble so we're not we're not as squelched discussing distant ideas as it was greatly feared three or two or even a year ago yeah, yeah i think um yeah, even on uh, mainstream platforms, you can still discuss quite, you know, radical and um, edgy ideas as long as you um, avoid the obvious, uh, you know, pitfalls, which are, uh, you know, making, making um, various kinds of uh, hate speech, you know. Uh, ideas can be expressed quite uh, coldly and calmly. You don't have to be emotional. You don't have to be frothing at the mouth, you know. You can... Uh, talk about all sorts of things still on the uh, mainstream media or mainstream social media. Mm -hmm. And uh, have you been reading any good books lately? Yeah, yeah, I'm. Yeah, loads of good books, millions of good books. Just can't uh, remember any of them right now. But <laughs> <laughs> they're changing your life. <laughs> oh, what am I reading? Um. Uh, I have to go and see what, what's in my book pile. Hang on a second. Okay, so uh, just uh, go check that out and uh, well, listen been to wounded. Fox News a The only bit. good news is this happened in a major metropolitan area with a, with a rash of level one trauma centers. So the people who were taken from the scene to the hospital were put in the best hands possible. That sometimes in outlying areas doesn't happen. It did happen today. We know one person has died at the hospital. Five others died at the scene, at least two dozen injured. We will continue. Okay, uh, Colin, do you, do you have some, some books there to recommend? Chief, about today's mass shooting on 4th of July during a parade. Okay, uh, just uh, jump in, Colin, whenever you have something. <laughs> yeah, an important um, one. Um, yeah, so I've been reading. I've been reading Ammianus Marcellinus's uh, history of the later Roman Empire. Okay, and and is that that book? Uh, when, when was it written? Well, this guy, he was, um, he was a fourth century Roman general. And uh, so he was very, you know, involved with all the uh, top people in those days, you know, the, um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the line of emperors that uh, came after Constantine the Great. And uh, probably the most important uh, of those emperors for Ammianus Marcellinus was uh, uh, the Emperor Julian, you know, who's who's known as Julian the Apostate, and he was the uh, famously the uh, the Roman Empire who um, tried to kind of re revert back to paganism, and uh, he came unstuck because he was killed on campaign in uh, somewhere in the middle of Iraq, or what is now Iraq, I should say. And so that's that's quite an interesting, you know, look at, back at the past. Uh, he's a very interesting character, Julian. He's he's, he's a very earnest figure. Uh, he's really trying to do his best, and in a in a bad situation, and uh, you know just the whole kind of um, power dynamic in those days. It was very very difficult to um, 
to be a Roman emperor, there, was, there were always problems. There were always, you know, barbarians at the border. There were rebellious army, armies, mutinian. Uh, there were always, there was, you know, on the one hand, you had to, um, you had to uh, save the empire. But in order to save the empire, you had to rely upon successful generals. And if you had successful generals, there was a pretty good chance that at least one of those successful generals would try to usurp your position. So it was, it was, it was a very um, unstable kind of political situation. Um, and you could, you, you could see why the Roman Empire became increasingly kind of calcified and, um, you know, riddled by corruption and uh, a, a loss of uh, kind of um, social cohesion. Yeah, and uh, anything else that you've been reading these days? Oh, I've written seven years in Tibet, um, which is a pretty interesting book. Um, it's actually it's actually a very interesting book and also a very boring book because sometimes you'll be describing you know how many mountains he he managed to trek past and uh, you know. Uh, how few houses this village had and how you know tiny that village was and so there's all this kind of pedantic uh you know himalayan stuff uh but also um there's some interesting kind of cultural insights into tibet and it sounds like a really kind of fun country people are really nice kind of interesting people they have a good sense of humor um they're quite uh you know hardy people but they're they're kind of um they have a kind of very positive view of life, it seems, and uh, it seems such a pity that uh, this was this this society was um, kind of crushed by the uh, the Chinese when they took over the communist Chinese and uh, forced to become part of the uh, this this Han Chinese Empire. And it also was turned into a movie, correct? Starring Brad. Yeah, Pitt. yeah, Brad Pitt uh, played. Um, the part of uh, Heinrich Hara, this this German's, uh, I think he's an Olympic skier and mountaineer. And uh, of course, he was uh, trying to cl climb somewhere in the Himalayas when the war broke out. And he was rounded, rounded up by the British and kept in an internment camp. And eventually he managed to escape and uh, he headed for the uh, the Himalayas, him and a few other Germans. And uh, they managed to kind of fit quite nicely into uh, Tibetan society after a, after a, a few difficulties. So quite an interesting book, but uh, also it has um, you know he's he's not really a professional writer. This guy he's he's a professional mountaineer and skier, and so you know it's it, in some in some ways that's a strength because he's more direct and more simple, but in, but also uh, you know he. Uh, sometimes he can be a bit pedantic. Right. 